Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Happy Friday, or whatever day you're listening to this. Today we have two more of the Homeric hymns, the two hymns to Demeter. They are number two and number 13. I'm going to talk about number 13 first, and you'll see why. We don't know much about hymn 13. Honestly, it isn't even that much of a hymn. In the notes on her translation, Susan Shelmerdine puts the word hymn in quotation marks because it's so not a hymn. It's more of a guide on how one should start and end a hymn to Demeter. It clocks in at a whopping three lines, two devoted to the greeting and one devoted to the farewell. There's no middle part. And it doesn't appear to be a fragment, so it's either a meditative mantra or it's a guide for future poets to use. And very similar language is found in other poets, so maybe? Hymn number two, on the other hand, is 495 lines and was probably longer since there are two points at which the text is broken. And um, actually, there are a few other smaller breaks throughout as well. And despite those breaks, the story it tells is still easy to follow. And it is my favorite. Uh, It dates to around 650 BCE, give or take a few decades or so on either end. It's the oldest written documentation of the myth of Demeter and Persephone. This doesn't mean it's the oldest version of the myth. It might be or it might not be, but it is definitely the oldest written source we have for it. And you've probably already heard one version or another of at least part of it. So here we go. The poet begins by letting us know who this hymn is about, Demeter, and her daughter who was stolen by Iodoneus, a big fancy name for Hades. Zeus gave him permission, but Demeter didn't know, and that's of course ignoring how said daughter felt about the whole thing. She'll tell us later. We then get the story of the abduction. The maiden, Corey in Greek, is in a meadow, hanging out with some oceanids, picking flowers. And in this field is this one flower that Gaia has made grow at the request of Zeus. And it works as intended. Corey finds it to be irresistible, but when she goes to pick it, the earth breaks open and Hades in his chariot springs forth and abducts her. And she screams, but no one hears her or at least cares. Well, two gods hear her. The first is a young Hecate, the goddess of underworld magic. And the second is Helios, the god of the sun. They hear Corey cry out for Zeus, but Zeus doesn't hear. But there is one other god to hear, and that would be her mother, Demeter. She tears the veil from her hair and begins searching the land and sea for her daughter. Now, if you're a little confused by the no one hears her except for Hecate and Helios, that's immediately followed by, oh yeah, Demeter hears her too. That's because there may be a break in the text between those two sections. Unlike the other breaks we'll see later in the text, we aren't sure about the spot, but if some of the text is missing, this section would make a lot more sense. Anyway, she searches for, you guessed it, nine days, during which she doesn't eat or drink or wash. And on the 10th day, Hecate meets her and says, I heard your daughter, but I didn't see what happened. But I know who did. Demeter doesn't speak, but she takes Hecate's hand and together they fly off to Helios. And Demeter confronts him. I know you saw her, she says. You're the sun. You see everything. And to his credit, Helios admits that he saw Hades seize Corey. 
He also says that Zeus is responsible. And then he has the nerve to say that she should stop grieving because Hades will be a great son-in-law. Hades is Demeter's brother in case you've forgotten how messed up the God's family tree is. Needless to say, Demeter does not agree that her brother will make a great son-in-law. And having been told to ease up on the grief, she instead doubles down. She refuses to go home to Olympus. Instead, she transforms herself to an old woman and wanders among the cities and fields on Earth. She wanders until she reaches the house of Chelios in Eleusis, and she sits down by the Parthenian well. And the daughters of Chelios see her there. He has four daughters, Calidike, Chlysodike, Demo, and Calithoe. Anyway, these four girls come to the well for water and meet Demeter. Only, of course, they don't recognize her. They see an old woman, and they take pity on her. They ask why she sits out by the well when there are multiple houses in Eleusis that would be happy to take her in, that that would find her, that there she could find the company of women her age and women younger as well, that she would be welcomed in both word and deed. Demeter weaves a story for them. Her name is Doso, she tells them, and she's a princess from Crete. She was captured by pirates but managed to escape when they landed in Thoricos. And she has wandered ever since and doesn't know where she is. She thanks the girls for their kindness and wishes that they will make good marriages and have many children. Because if you're the goddess in charge of fertility and the harvest, you kind of have to offer that as a blessing. And this is where there is a definite break in the text. So she says some more, but I can't tell you exactly what it is. But she concludes by asking if the girls know anywhere she could work. You know, as a temp, but, what you know, she'd really like to babysit. And she'd be awesome at it. Kaladike rattles off a list of families that would be happy to hire her, but she thinks the perfect person to ask is her own mother. Perhaps this old woman could be her little brother's nursemaid. Demeter nods. The girls hurry home to tell their parents about the old woman, and they are told to bring her back to the house. Demeter pauses on the threshold, which you may recall is a liminal space. And while in that space, her divinity shows. And Metanera, the girl's mother, rises and asks Demeter to take her seat, offering her a throne. But Demeter declines. And in the subsequent section, we see how well Demeter is treated by Metanera and her daughters. And then there's another break in the text. So there's more that happens that I can't tell you because we simply no longer have those lines of the poem. Ultimately, no questions asked, Metanera puts her son, Demophoon, in the arms of Demeter and asks him to raise him. Um, there's another short break in the poem as it describes how Demeter cares for the baby, but we still have the important part. At night, when no one is looking, she anoints him with ambrosia and buries him in the fire. These actions are intended to make the boy immortal. The fancy name for this is apotheosis by fire. But Metanera finds out before the process can be fish finished, and Demeter pulls the boy from the fire and throws him to the ground. Don't worry, in this version it appears that he escapes unharmed. And if you thought Demeter was mad before, well, now the world will suffer her wrath. She refuses to let things grow until the Eleusian, excuse me, the Eleusinians build a great temple to appease her. And they do it at once. They build a great temple, and Demeter takes up residence there and finally starts to mourn her daughter. And it's a rough year for the mortals. Frankly, Demeter doesn't care. She's content to prevent the plants from growing forever, which is also bad for the gods, because without mortals, there is no one to sacrifice to them. 
Finally, Zeus sends Iris as an embassy to try to convince Demeter to, you know, just get over it. But Demeter says she'll never set foot on Olympus until she can see her daughter again. Zeus knows that he's lost on this count. So he tells, so he sends Hermes to tell Hades to bring Persephone, a.k.a. Kore, back. And Persephone is very excited to get back to her mother. But before they leave the underworld, Hades convinces her to eat a few pomegranate seeds. The gods all meet up, and Demeter hugs Persephone but pulls back because she knows something is wrong. She asks if her daughter ate anything while she was in the underworld, because if she did, then she will have to live in the underworld for a third of each year, which does make me laugh because winter lasts considerably longer here in Michigan. But I digress. Just a few pomegranate seeds, and Hades forced me to eat them. And yeah, you can interpret that statement in a lot of different ways. Persephone tells her version of the story, how she was playing with a whole bunch of Oceanids, whose names she rattles off, and how the earth opened up and Hades carried her off, and how she cried out, and how all of this is true. And Zeus agrees to let Persephone stay with Demeter for two-thirds of the year. And then Demeter says that whoever follows the appropriate rites at her new temple and Eleusis will find joy in the afterlife. And she goes off to teach the people what those rites are. And then she rejoins her family on Olympus. And with a final farewell to Demeter and Persephone, the poem ends there. And we'll take a short break and then come back to discuss some of the highlights of this poem. I loved this poem the first time I read it in college, and I still love it. As a lost mother, I recognize Demeter's grief and find that I can identify with how her emotions are described. I'm not a particularly religious person, and I sometimes talk to the Greek gods, and often if I decide I need to invoke one of them, Demeter is the one I turn to because I feel like she would have understood me way back when. So yeah, this is probably one of my favorite pieces of all the literature this podcast has and or will cover. Now on to the analysis of it. There are two myths pushed together into this poem. One tells the story of why we have seasons, the rape of Persephone, and the second tells the story of how the Eleusinian mysteries were created. And if we want to get into comparative mythology, which of course we do, these two stories can be seen elsewhere, say, in the Bible. There's the forbidden fruit. There's a happy afterlife. So let's just start with that first myth. In this telling of the rape of Persephone, it really does seem to be just that. In no version does she go to the underworld willingly. And in this version, she does not eat the pomegranate seeds willingly. Does this make you uncomfortable? It does me. Even though she does not choose to eat the seeds, she still must stay with the man who forced them on her. It's pretty messed up. Poor Persephone. But this leads to that second myth, the Eleusinian mysteries. The importance of this may be confusing to you. After all, there already was an underworld. There was an afterlife. There was a place you went when you died. And if you're used to the concept of going to heaven when you die, this sounds kind of the same. But it wasn't. The underworld wasn't a place of happiness. 
In fact, the underworld includes the river Lethe, whose waters make you forget, and the dead would drink from Lethe and forget and just be and just wander and bump into other dead people who no longer knew who they were. But if you were a follower of the Eleusinian Mysteries, if you went through that cult initiation, then you could achieve happiness, the same happiness that the gods possess after you die. Sound familiar? Don't ask exactly what those rites looked like. They're called a mystery for a reason. We have one account from several centuries after this poem was written, and it's by a Christian writer, so we really can't say for certain how accurate his description is. So this is one of many ancient Greek cults that are called mystery religions simply because we no longer know what their religious practice looked like. But the Eleusinian mysteries are important because of how they changed the perception of what the afterlife looks like. So what's your take on this poem? Pop over to the blog and share. And if you do, you will find a detailed photograph of my favorite Bernini sculpture, um, his, uh, his Rape of Prosperpina, the uh, Italian Latin for Persephone. The link, as always, is in the show notes. On Monday, we'll revisit a story that Aeschylus covered in The Libation Bearers. Uh, Sophocles tells that story from a different perspective in his Electra. If you're reading ahead, make sure that you're reading Sophocles and not Euripides. We will read the Euripides version later. So again, up next is Electra by Sophocles on Monday. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.